Hi, everybody. We have a wonderful interview coming up with Graham Hancock today, who's written a new book about a subject that has rarely been touched, in fact, not been touched at all in this way, which is the prehistory of the Americas, which have until now been considered the new world. Grandma's saying, no, no, this is the old world. And there have been some major impacts on it, loss of consciousness, uh, an attempt to wake up again, and all of this in this incredible story. So without further ado, we'll go to Graham, who's in a hotel room in Toronto on tour and was kind enough to work us in to his schedule. And I know it's so exhausting. You've been up, you've been up, you said till one o'clock in the morning signing books night after night. There's been a there's been a spectacular uh, reaction to this book, which I'm enormously grateful for. I'm eno enormously grateful to my readers for supporting me because I'm kind of a, a controversial figure, and the mainstream doesn't like me, and archaeologists don't 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 like uh, don't like my work, and they call me names. They call me a pseudo scientist or a pseudo archaeologist. So it's nice to know that I have the that I have the solidarity and and support of my of my readers and i've been i've been doing very large events uh, right across the united states and i'm coming coming back to the united states for another 3 or 4 weeks i actually won't finish in the us until the 4th of june but i'm on a brief excursion in canada at the moment and i've spoken in vancouver and then in montreal last night uh, and i'm speaking in toronto tomorrow and it's been the same both in canada and in the us very large audiences and and uh, because this is my opportunity to give back to my readers uh, I am I'm, I'm absolutely determined that I will sign every book that I will uh, you know stand up and 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 take photos and also and also have have discussions because my readers bring me very interesting information but the net result is that I've been ending up um, with, uh, with with uh, signings going on until two o'clock in the morning well all things considered you're looking good <laughs> so let's dive into your story Graham I think most of the people watching this know you they know of your work but we also have new audiences all the time who I would like to kind of bring into the fold by giving a really quick hopscotch. Um, a lot of us became familiar with you and your work, at, which really rocked all of our worlds, called Fingerprints of the Gods. I mean, I think just the one part, just one part of it alone with people saying, holy cow, looking at the Piri Reese map, blew everybody away to say nothing of the rest of the evidence. Yeah. So what I'd like to do, if you can kind of quickly just set this up for us, is give us an idea of your process of discovery from fingerprints of the gods through magicians of the gods to America before now and your trajectory of thought and where we're headed. Yeah. Well, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods was published in 1995, uh, and it's the first, first book in which I begin to make the case for a lost civilization uh, that flourished during the Ice Age uh, more than. 12,000 years ago. Uh, and such an idea is completely unacceptable to mainstream archaeology. Uh, mainstream archaeologists have no room for a lost civilization. They have a nice, neat timeline of the human story uh, where our ancestors passed through the, through the Stone Age, the, the Paleolithic, and then the more recent part of the Paleolithic is called the Upper Paleolithic. They are all Stone Age hunter-gatherers. Then they kind of move into what's called the Neolithic about nine, 10,000 years ago. They start um, the first sort of settlements, the first agriculture. About 6,000 years ago, you get the first civilizations. This is according to the mainstream view uh, in uh, Mesopotamia. 
uh, I have a I have a very well known book in in my shelves called History Begins at Sumer, uh, and and uh, which attributes the origins of civilization to to Mesopotamia and to the Sumerians about about six thousand years ago. So for me to uh, come into the picture, uh, not as an archaeologist, but as a journalist, uh, an investigative journalist, putting pieces of the puzzle together and say, well, actually, guys, I think you're wrong. Uh, I think we're missing a whole chapter of the human story. Uh, I think we're a species with amnesia. The myths and traditions of the world are our memories, and we are mistakenly uh, dismissing those myths and traditions, which all speak of a lost golden age, which all speak of a cataclysm that brought that golden age to an end. Um, and and uh, my focus in, in Fingerprints of the Gods was to bring all this together uh, for the first time in, in one large document. Uh, and, and I made the case in Fingerprints of the Gods that, quote, unquote, my lost civilization uh, had been destroyed in a massive global cataclysm uh, round about 12,500 to 12,800 uh, years ago. Uh, and when I made that case uh, back in 1995, uh, there were there were a number of reasons why the mainstream were able to attack me because back in 1995 there was no evidence of a global cataclysm. It was my it was my intuition and piecing together the evidence from the myths and traditions that suggested that to me. Uh, and there was also no evidence of high civilization 12,000 years ago. Uh, and archaeologists were, were able to say, you know, for example, uh, with John Anthony West and, and uh, Robert Schock from Boston University, I, I was making the case that the Great Sphinx is uh, 12,000 years old, uh, not, uh, not four or 5,000 years old. Uh, and, and this is based on the, and it was John Anthony West who originally realized this, that there, are water, there is water weathering of the Sphinx and it appears to have been subjected to a very long period of heavy rainfall. Well, the, uh, you don't get that rainfall on the Giza Plateau 5,000 years ago, but you do get it, you know, 12,000 years ago. But when we tried to advance this argument, the response of archaeology was, no, it's impossible. Uh, show us the, the potsherds of your lost civilization. Show us, any other, <coughs> show, show us any other site anywhere in the world that you could possibly claim is 12,000 years old and we might listen to you. And the problem was it, it, wasn't, it wasn't possible to do that. But since Fingerprints of the Gods was published in 1995, um, uh, to, to massive uh, assaults by archaeologists, since then, the evidence has been moving steadily in favor uh, of a forgotten episode in human history, and two crucial factors have come into play. One of them is now firmly established evidence that, the, that our Earth passed through an absolutely massive cataclysm between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And that's exactly in the window uh, where I placed the cataclysm uh, with, with fingerprints of the gods. Uh, and, and we can go into that in, in, in more detail. But secondly, the other, the other crucial development has been the discovery of the site of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, uh, a site discovered by mainstream archaeology. Uh, and to their surprise, they find that this gigantic uh, megalithic site 
which may well be the largest megalithic site on Earth because most of it is still underground. Mm. Uh, they've, they've identified hundreds of giant megalithic pillars underground with ground-penetrating radar. Uh, highly sophisticated site with very accurate uh, geometry and astronomical alignments uh, that this site is firmly dated to 11,600 years old. And suddenly, it's not even that far from uh, you know from Giza in 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 Egypt suddenly the notion that the great sphinx is 12000 years years old is no longer isolated and alone suddenly it starts to fit into a pattern and we begin to realize that we must look for a wider picture uh, than we than we've been looking for before so uh, what i've done over the years is i've followed the evidence as it's as it's led me and when the, whenever there's been a real breakthrough in new evidence that's led me to write a new book so the book that really followed uh, i wrote many other books in between but the book that really picks up the story of fingerprints of the gods i published that in 2015 uh, it's magicians of the gods um, which takes the story much further and takes account uh, of that cataclysmic event between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. It takes account of the astonishing evidence from Gobekli Tepe uh, and many other sites around the world. And then while I was researching that book, uh, I became aware of a mass of new evidence coming out of the Americas, uh, that, uh, that there had been a very rigid and fixed view amongst archaeologists about the story of the peopling of the Americas and the prehistory of the Americas, and that this rigid and fixed view was falling apart at the seams in the face of new evidence, uh, indicating that human beings had been in the Americas for vastly longer than archaeologists had previously claimed. Uh, and, and, and evidence of really highly sophisticated constructions uh, in the Americas as well. And I began to feel as this evidence started to pour in, I began to feel there's really another story to tell here. Uh, we need to consider the possibility that the Americas might not be a place that civilization was brought to. The Americas might have been the place where civilization began. Uh, and that's what, uh, that's what led me to write uh, America before. And the subtitle is The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. But where it really happened for me, where it touched my heart, where I, where I became compelled to write this book, although I already had much of the evidence, was when I participated at Standing Rock uh, in, um, in December 2016. And, and uh, I, it was just brought home to me uh, the, 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 the terrible wiping away of cultural memory, the destruction of Native American traditions, the, the theft of their lands, the, 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 the abusive way in which they'd, they'd been treated. That's when it touched my heart. And that's when I felt I must write this book and I must, I must do my bit uh, to set the record straight and not allow Native American cultures to be marginalized in the way they've been and to be pushed to the edges of things, but to bring them to the center of the story and to really look at what's been going on in the Americas, which is truly a revolution in our understanding of the past, not only of the Americas, but of the whole world. Indeed. And what I'd like to do is just back up for a moment and look at what the world was like. Now, yourself and um, Randall Carlson, Freddie Silva, and other authors also have started really digging into the nature of the collective story, which seems to overlay perfectly from one region of the world to the other, almost uh, with an understanding there were gardens of Eden or navels of civilization around the planet, each having very similar characteristics in their hierarchical structure on a spiritual level, for example, and the passed down knowledge. You say that the world 
prior to some of these great civilizations prior to the cataclysm would have been on a par with uh, the advancement and refinements of, say, the 18th century in the Western world. So explain what you mean by that and what kind of um, artifacts and evidence are there to support that, and why not even further than the 18th century? Well, I think it's, I think it's really important. I, I regard myself as being involved in a serious task here. And that task is to adjust the wrongs that have been done to the human story by archaeology and history. Uh, I, need to, I need to put that story right. That's, that's my mission, if you like. That's what I'm here to do. And in order to do that, uh, I can't deal with wishy-washy or woo-woo ideas. I have, to, I have to do battle with them on their own ground. I have to... I have to present the most solid and the, and, and the most documented evidence, something that can really be backed up. Um, so here's my position on the, on the character of this lost civilization. The reason I say the end of the 18th century, uh, a comparison with the end of the 18th century, I'm not saying they were like our civilization at the end of the 18th century, but what I am saying is that they had developed a certain technology uh, that compares with a certain technology of our civilization at the end of the 18th century. And that is evident in ancient maps. You mentioned the Piri Reis map. The Piri Reis map was drawn by a Turkish admiral in 1513. Uh, it was originally a world map, but only a corner of it has survived. And that corner uh, shows South America and the east, southeast coast of North America, and it shows the coast of West Africa as well. Unfortunately, surviving on it um, is some texts uh, written in Piri Reis's own hands. And in, his, in those texts, he tells us that he based his map on more than 100 older source maps. Uh, and that those uh, that those maps had come originally from the library of Alexandria, uh, and that they had when the library was burned, they were rescued and they were taken to Constantinople, where they remained in archives for hundreds of years until in the 16th century, Piri Reis got his hands on them, and he found them in a very decayed and devastated state, and he decided to preserve the information on them by by copying them onto this map. Well, that map. Uh, is one of a category of maps which are all based on older source maps. And what these maps uh, show is a number of things. First of all, they show the world as it looked during the last ice age, not as it looks now. Uh, and we know that because we can reconstruct the coastlines of the earth during the last ice age when, when sea levels were 400 feet lower than they are today. Um, and secondly, they incorporate very precise relative longitudes. Now, the longitude problem was a huge problem for navigators of our civilization right through until the end of the 18th century. It's very important if you're sailing a ship at sea that you know what your longitude is. If you're off on longitude, you might find yourself sailing into a cliff or a coastline that you think is 400 miles further west of you or 400 miles further east of you. Uh, the only way you're going to avoid that is if you know your longitude, your exact position at sea precisely. And it's just a fact that our civilization wasn't able to do that until the end of the 18th century. That's when accurate chronometers were invented that could keep time at sea, accurate marine chronometers. And that's what you need in order to do longitude. So when I say a technology equivalent to ours at the end of the 18th century, that is based on evidence that these maps based on older source maps, contain extremely accurate relative longitudes. Therefore, the civilization that 
created those maps and that mapped the world during the last ice age had at least reached the level of technology that we had reached in the 18th century as regards as regards navigation. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I think it was a civilization exactly like ours. The fact that they'd mastered longitude. Sorry, I'm, I'm not hearing you there, Regina. I, I was going to say, not that you're not saying that they had coffee and tea parlors and paintings no. in their frilly little salons. I'm not suggesting that. I don't want to, I don't want to project us onto the past. Yeah. I want the past to speak to itself. And through those maps, the past speaks very clearly that some civilization during the Ice Age explored and mapped the world and did so with a level of accuracy that tells us they had, they had cracked the longitude problem that we did not crack until the end of the 18th century. And I don't want to make claims above and, above and beyond that, except to say, having immersed myself in this subject for more than a quarter of a century, uh, that I have a very strong feeling that the lost civilization we're talking about was actually very different from our own civilization in many, many, many ways. That it did not, that it did not uh, pursue the... Uh, technological approach that we that we have taken uh, our civilization rests everything on technology on leverage on mechanical advantage we weigh measure and count stuff that's how that's how our our sciences progress and in the process i think we've lost uh, connection with other aspects of the of, of the human creature uh, i think we have human beings have enormous innate abilities uh, and I believe that those abilities were tapped by the lost civilization in a way that they are that they are not tapped by our civilization. I'm, I would say human beings still have those abilities, but we've allowed them to lapse, uh, and we've rested all our trust in machines. So I I don't uh, think that we are necessarily looking for a machine-based technology uh, in in the remote past. I think we're looking for a civilization very different from ours. And I believe a civilization that emerged from shamanism uh, and that had its uh, roots and origins uh, in, in shamanism and that was interested fundamentally in the nurture of the human spirit. You know, we regard ourselves as fantastically advanced because, you know, we have supermarkets and motor cars and, and, and airplanes and we all are busily living our lives uh, buying and selling stuff and producing and consuming and this is supposed to be the pinnacle of, of human experience. I, I, I believe we're dealing with a civilization that regarded the whole human project as about nurturing and growing the spirit uh, and, that's, and that's what it was all about. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's very different from our own. And that's another reason why I feel that America is a place we should be looking at much more closely because of the ancient shamanistic tr tr traditions in the Americas. Yes, ab absolutely. And the evidence that's being found around the world is all pointing to the same thing. It has to do with levels of consciousness, uh, levels of our understanding of the nature real of reality, the soul, the journey of the soul after death. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But that seems to be reflective globally in any shards of evidence that have been found prior to 12,000 and, of course, much further back than that even. So one of the things I want to do before we get into the story of the Americas specifically we're going to start where you start at the Serpent Mound is get into the nature really briefly. I think a lot of people have heard about this in other uh, interviews with yourself and others having to do with the nature of the cataclysmic event and then how we had uh, such a rise in waters that so much of civilization was lost in such a quick period of time. Okay, well, 
there is a very peculiar geological epoch called the Younger Dryas. Geologists call it the Younger Dryas because it was a period of extreme cold and freezing on the earth. And there's a certain kind of alpine flower, uh, the Dryas, which uh, flourishes in those, in those conditions. And that's why it's called the Younger Dryas. Um, and it extends from 800 to 11,600 years ago. Uh, and what happened 12,800 years ago is that the world had been warming up uh, quite gradually and, and comfortably for several thousand years. The last ice age reached its peak 21,000 years ago. That was the last glacial maximum. The world was extremely cold then, and sea levels were at their lowest. They were 400 feet lower than they are today. Uh, and to put that in context, that means that 10 million square miles of land were above water then that are underwater now uh, because of sea level rise. And the reason that sea levels were so much lower at the peak of the last ice age was all that water was locked up in gigantic ice caps uh, on top of North America and on top of Northern Europe, primarily North America and Northern Europe and Greenland were the, the, the main areas where, where this, uh, this ice had frozen up. And then... The climate began to warm. Uh, there was a, a gradual reduction in the in the depths, uh, uh, the depth of the ice caps. Uh, there was a slow and gradual rise in sea level. Uh, everything seemed to be progressing in a non-cataclysmic way. And then suddenly, twelve thousand eight hundred years ago, this this colossal, dramatic plunge in global temperatures. Uh, which brings the world back to the peak of the last ice age. It's as cold as it was at the last glacial maximum, extremely, extremely cold. But weirdly, at exactly that moment when global temperatures plunge, you get a release of meltwater into the world ocean. You get a rise in sea level, very rapid, very sudden. And that is anomalous in itself, because in a period of freezing, you would not expect that to happen. You would expect the water to stay on the ice caps not to enter the ocean. So we have to understand how, why, what was it that caused that release of meltwater into, into, into the world oceans at that time when the world is also becoming extremely cold. This is the moment 12,800 years ago, and then roughly the thousand years after that, that covers the Younger Dryas period, when all the megafauna uh, go extinct, the, the mammoths, the mastodons, the woolly rhinos, the saber-toothed tigers, the dire wolves, the giant sloths, they all go down uh, in that episode between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. 11,600 years ago is the end of the Younger Dryas. Then equally mysteriously, global temperatures rocket up almost to modern day levels. And there's another huge release of meltwater uh, into the world ocean. And we enter what is called geologically the Holocene, which is our present epoch of the earth, our present geological uh, era. And, you know, we're told that, that the very beginnings of civilization, the first Neolithic steps that ultimately would lead to Sumer and so on and so forth, began immediately after uh, the Younger Dryas. And, and uh, the case I'm making uh, is that this was a restarting of civilization. It was a reboot after a cataclysm. Uh, it wasn't that just mysteriously after this climate episode, civilization suddenly started to take its first tentative steps. Now, uh, to be clear, the Younger Dryas is a mystery. Uh, and, and that mystery has been addressed by a number of different scientists, but of particular interest is the work of the Comet Research Group. And the Comet Research Group is now made up of more than 60, 60 major 
figures in the fields of uh, geophysics, uh, geology, geoscience, oceanography, uh, who study world climate and who study these effects. And they were puzzled by the whole Younger Dryas episode, and they tried to find a, an explanation for it. And what they found was a layer of soil all around the world, but particularly strongly represented in the Americas, which is called the Younger Dryas boundary layer. And it uh, contains evidence of massive wildfires burning. It's full of soot, for example. But right at the base of it, there are nanodiamonds, there are carbon spherules, there's melt glass, like the trinitite that you get in nuclear explosions. Um, there's platinum. Uh, there's iridium. Uh, all of these things taken in abundance speak to a cosmic impact. They speak to the, the world being hit uh, by very specifically, the fragments of a, a giant comet, a comet that had broken up into multiple fragments. And this is called the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. And uh, I, I need to make uh, clear to those who are tuning in that this is not uh, a work of pseudoscience. This is a work of absolutely mainstream science. And these leading scientists have published all their work in very major peer-reviewed uh, scientific journals, like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, like the Journal of Geology, like Nature's Scientific Reports, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and their case, very strongly, uh, is that a giant comet, perhaps 100 miles in diameter, entered the inner solar system about 20,000 years ago. And at first, there was no problem. It was on an Earth-crossing orbit, but we kept missing it. However, it did what all comets do. It began to break up into multiple fragments. And because it was very big, some of those fragments were very big as well. Uh, and, and the width of the meteor stream that was created by the, 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 the fragmentation of this comet began to grow. Uh, and and 12,800 years ago, at least four large objects fell out of that meteor stream and hit the North American ice cap. That's why we get the sudden release of meltwater into the world ocean, uh, which you would not expect uh, during a period of freezing. We get it because the ice cap has been pulverized by these gigantic cosmic impacts with objects that might be more than a kilometer in diameter and would come in at thousands of kilometers an, uh, an hour and just hit, the, hit, it, hit it with enormous force. Um, and and uh, the reason the world then gets cold is precisely because of that release of meltwater from the North American and the Greenland ice caps. Uh, that causes uh, icy water to flood into the Atlantic Ocean, which stops the Gulf Stream dead in its tracks. And the Gulf Stream is part of what's called the global meridional overturning circulation of our planet. It's our central heating system. Mm -hmm. And it got switched off uh, by that, that meltwater. Uh, and and um, that's why the world gets so cold. That's why we have this sudden rise in sea levels. And that's why we have evidence all over the world, but again, particularly concentrated on the Americas, of gigantic wildfires burning. There are, there are specific papers that have been published in the Journal of Geology on this, what they call biomass burning. We are used to wildfires today, but what they're talking about is wildfires on the scale of continents, whole continents of forests in, in flames. And this is because the impacts were not confined to the North American ice cap. They were widely distributed. They also hit Europe. They've been documented as far east as Syria, as far south as South America, and even as far south as Antarctica. A superheated ejector thrown up by these impacts 
came back down to earth, hit those forests and set them alight. And that's why we have the, the evidence of this biomass burning. So the best explanation that science is presently offering, I'm not saying it's the only explanation, uh, and it's still controversial to some extent, but the best explanation, uh, thoroughly documented, now we have more than 10 years of scientific papers behind it, and they're still publishing five or six new papers every year. The most recent one was published in Nature Scientific Reports um, uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, presenting and building up the evidence that the only way we can explain this cataclysmic event uh, is with comet, uh, comet impacts, Co a comet that had broken up into multiple fragments and those fragments hit the earth and the epicenter was North America and the North American ice cap. And if I may just continue, we then have the mystery of the end of the Younger Dryas, 1,200 years later, 11,600 years ago, which is also cataclysmic, uh, and which uh, sees the, uh, the final end of the megafauna, uh, and which also sees a huge rise in sea level. Uh, and the suggestion is that it was fragments of the same comet that caused that as well, except this time they didn't hit an ice cap, they hit an ocean. Uh, and, and hitting an ocean, they caused huge tidal waves and, and a massive cloud of water vapor was sent up into the upper atmosphere. And that cloud of water vapor created a greenhouse effect, which accounts for the very radical warming that you get at that time and the huge rise in sea level that geologists call meltwater pulse 1b, dated very precisely to 11,600 years ago. And I just have to take this moment to say that's exactly the date that Plato gives us for the destruction and submergence of Atlantis. Uh, and where did Plato say Atlantis was? West of the Pillars of Hercules, west of the Straits of Gibraltar, a huge island. What huge island lies west of the Pillars of Hercules, if not the Americas, if not Turtle Island, as the Native Americans call it? Indeed, and thank you so much for going into that amount of detail compressed into about seven or eight minutes of this history. Another thing that's interesting that you do mention, for example, is the, the myth of Atlantis, Bimini, the Bimini Road and so forth. This actually appears on these ancient maps well, as above water. Exactly. That's, that's one of the intriguing things about the Piri Reis map that we just mentioned, which is drawn, as, as we said, by a Turkish admiral in 1513, but based on much earlier source maps. There are lots of controversies around the Piri Reis map. Uh, for example, it's claimed that it shows Antarctica at the southern end of South America, and it does. Um, but but even more interesting is a, is a large island that's shown lying off the uh, southeast coast of North America, uh, more or less exactly in the place where the Grand Bahama banks stand today. Uh, and running up the middle of that island, and anybody can go see this on the map, <coughs> running up the middle of that island is a row of huge megaliths laid out in the form of a road. They're quite clearly depicted uh, mm -hmm. on that island, and that island is above water. Um, but I'm a scuba diver and I've dived on that road. It's called the Bimini Road. Uh, and it looks exactly as it looks on the Piri Reis map. And the mystery is that in that map, based on these much older source maps from the Ice Age, uh, that island is shown as being above water, whereas now it's underwater. So that is firm evidence that somebody was mapping the world uh, when sea levels were much lower than they are today. Indeed, I love the fact that you take it from the air, you take the, you took seven years to dive under the oceans to yeah. be able to take amazing photographs of some of the anomalies under That's the sea. That's my wife, Santa, who took uh, it. Yes, Santa, I know, she, she just did beautiful work. work. 
And some of that, you've got a lot of great pictures in your book, including some of those. I just want to say that for people who are going to pick up a copy. Let's go to Serpent Mound, the Americas. What was so significant about Serpent Mound? And then I want to go down to Mississippi and Alabama and end up in the Amazon with all these anomalous things that, again, point to a higher level of consciousness in the day. My my argument is um, that we are dealing with the legacy uh, of a remote ancestral civilization, a civilization that was destroyed in the cataclysms of the Younger Dryas between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, but that there were survivors. And that those survivors, the world then was in some ways like the world today. We're an advanced technological civilization, but we coexist with hunter-gatherers. There are hunter-gatherers still living in the world today who don't even know we exist. There are uncontacted tribes uh, in the Amazon living a traditional lifestyle that has gone on for thousands of years, or, or the hunter-gatherers of the Namibian desert. They know we exist, but they choose not to live our lifestyle. They continue to live the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and I suggest it was the same. Uh, during the Ice Age. And just as today, if we were to suffer a gigantic cataclysm on the scale of the Younger Dryas impacts, I don't think our advanced civilization would survive. There are so few of us who know uh, how to survive at all, so few of us who have survival skills, uh, and we're psychologically unprepared for a cataclysm. We're used to everything being laid on for us. We take it absolutely for granted. You strip all that away. You stop food supply into the cities. Within three days, there's no food in the cities. Within a week, people are starving. Within a month, there's absolute chaos uh, and, and disaster. The moral fiber of our society is not prepared to handle a cataclysm of this sort. Those who would survive a global cataclysm of that nature would be the hunter-gatherers of our world because they're masters of survival, whether in the Amazon jungle or, or Namibia or, or elsewhere. They know how to survive. They would survive. And I believe it was the case uh, during the Ice Age as well. But it was the hunter-gatherers who primarily survived, but amongst them settled the, su the, the survivors, the few survivors of the lost civilization, and they made it their mission all around the world to pass down certain ideas, uh, specifically their religious ideas, uh, which are then manifested in certain forms of architecture. Uh, and and um, that's when we, find, when we find very curious similarities between cultures that we know have been separated for more than 12,000 years, like ancient Egypt and the ancient Mississippi Valley. When we find astonishing detailed similarities between these two cultures, they can't have resulted from direct contact uh, during the historical period. They have to have happened before the separation of peoples. They have to have happened before uh, 12,000 years ago. And one of these ideas that was passed down all around the world, and I use Richard Dawkins' phrase, uh, the, the, uh, I don't like Richard Dawkins' work, he's the author of The Selfish Gene, but he makes a cultural comparison which he calls memes. Just as genes reproduce themselves biologically, memes reproduce themselves culturally. And one of these memes that was passed down from the lost civilization is the connection of earth and sky, as above, so below. Uh, heaven speaking to earth, earth speaking to heaven, um, and the creation of uh, giant monuments that uh, recognize and, and honor that connection. Uh, and we can find such monuments in many different parts of the world. Uh, we can find the Great Sphinx of Giza, uh, 
celebrates the marriage of heaven and earth on the spring equinox. The sun rises in direct alignment with the gaze of the great sphinx uh, on the spring equinox. Uh, the temple of Karnak in Upper Egypt targets the rising sun on the winter solstice. Well, at Serpent Mound in Ohio, which is a 1,340-foot-long effigy mound of a serpent, a beautiful piece of extraordinary artistic work and also of detailed geometry, the head and the open jaws of Serpent Mound directly target the setting sun on the summer solstice with very high precision. And Santa was able to prove this with a drone, which she put 400 feet up above Serpent Mound. And we watched the sun go down and it's a magical thing. When you can see it from the sky, when, because Serpent Mound today is surrounded by trees. When you see it from the sky, you see the alignment so perfect, such incredible precision that the ancients went to these lengths in order to achieve that and then if you go north from serpent mound you have you have a couple of really amazing sites that are hugely neglected and they are called um, high bank works and newark earthworks and they're full of geometry and astronomy uh, high bank works and newark works have many different large geometrical earthworks on the scale of hundreds of meters but they share one particular design in common and that is a combination of an octagon and a circle. It's found both at High Bank and at Newark. These two sites are 60 miles apart, but the octagon circle combination at High Bank is oriented at precisely 90 degrees to the octagon circle combination at Newark. This is not an accident. This is a result of very, very precise, uh, very sophisticated surveying and geometry over an enormous scale. And we weren't aware of it ourselves until recent work was done with LIDAR and measurement and it suddenly became clear, my goodness, the ancients were capable of perfectly aligning sites that are 60 miles apart with a 90 degree connection. This uh, is way beyond what, is, what they were thought to have been capable of. And I mean, not only that, the octagon circle combination at Newark also targets a very obscure astronomical phenomenon, which is the 18.6-year cycle of the moon. Just as the sun has its extreme rising and setting points on the horizon, so does the moon. And this unfolds over a period of 18.6 years. There are eight key moments in those 18.6 years, and every one of them is targeted by the angles of the octagon-circle combination at, at, at Newark. So this tells us we are dealing with geometers uh, and astronomers who were highly skilled. And the fact that very, very similar structures are found all around the world, that we find the same thing, for example, going on at Stonehenge and in the megalithic sites mm -hmm. of, of England, uh, and the, that we find the same thing going on in the Amazon as well, uh, and that all of them are connected to a system of religious ideas concerned to the quest and the meaning of life after death. Uh, this, is, this cannot be an accident. We're looking at a legacy. We're looking at a legacy of knowledge and information that was passed down from the remotest past, passed down from the Ice Age when, before the separation of peoples. And one of the terms, um, I know in Freddie Silva's new work, uh, because I'll be talking to him later on in another couple of weeks, he's talking about the notion um, that these people that came to help um, re, uh, reinstitute some of the knowledge among the people that survived this period of time, they characterize these people in the same way. They're often depicted around the world as people who were tall, people who had large eyes. And when I say large eyes in the depictions, that could be metaphorical. People with knowledge that came to reseed knowledge of 
all kinds. But one thing that's interesting to me is, you know, again and again, as you say, these have to do with astronomical implications and alignments. And we think, why was it so important? If it's true that the Egyptians laid nothing down, it's certainly in the very earliest times uh, in, through the 18th dynasty, unless it had specific purpose for teaching and passing on later on, for example, why was it so important that we knew about our place within the cosmos and that these notions of afterlife were passed on from, from what the elders or the, the wise ones knew to be distant future times. Why was this so important globally? If you think about it, um, what could be more important than the issue of what happens to us when we die? Um, we are taught to ignore that in modern society. It's regarded as an unimportant matter. Uh, we kind of shove it away into the corner and we pretend it's not going to happen. We, we sort of like to pretend that we're immortal in some way. Um, but actually, the issue of death is, is, is a fundamental, um, a fundamental uh, situation that faces everyone. We're all going to die. And, and uh, a modern scientist, and I'll mention Richard Dawkins again, the, the author of The Selfish Gene, his, his view is that we're just sort of meat robots, that we have no, that there is no transcendental purpose or meaning to our lives, that we're just accidents of chemistry and biology. He mocks and laughs at the notion of the soul or of the immortal soul uh, manifested in, in a human body, but, but he can't possibly know that he's right. And he's not stating scientific facts. Actually, he's stating his own kind of religious point of view. It's based on faith, that idea that there's nothing after death. Uh, whereas many ancient cultures, uh, devoted their best minds to this problem for thousands of years because if something does happen after death, if the soul does go on, then the nature of the lives we've lived, the sort of life we've chosen to live while we manifested in the human body on earth uh, becomes a matter of great importance. We may be held to account for it uh, on our afterlife journey. And this is one of the these memes that have been passed down from a lost civilization, the notion that upon death, the soul makes a journey. Uh, and in the case of ancient Egypt and in the case of the Mississippi Valley, that journey is identical, that the soul rises up to the constellation of Orion, which is seen as a sort of portal through which the soul then passes to the Milky Way and makes a journey along the Milky Way, where it is confronted by challenges and ordeals and held to account for every second of the life uh, that, has been, that has been lived. What did you do? with that gift of a human body that you were given? Did you use it well or did you waste it? These are the fundamental questions that are asked and they were asked in the Mississippi Valley and they were asked in ancient Egypt. And it's not just the, the, the similarity of rising to Orion, passing to the Milky Way, making a journey along the Milky Way, which the uh, Mississippi Valley people called the path of souls. Um, that in itself is extremely striking, but then you start to meet uh, you, you start to meet other figures. You meet figures like the Birdman in the Mississippi Valley, who is depicted as a human being with the head of a hawk, uh, and he's a sort of hero deity, and his role is to represent the triumph of life over death. Um, exactly identical figure in ancient Egypt is the god Horus. Mm. Uh, a hero deity who is represented with the body of a man and the head of a hawk who also symbolizes the triumph of life over death. 
you know, it goes on. I, I, I mean, of, of course, we only have a few minutes, so I kind of, but that's why I've written a 600-page book right. uh, because there's, there's, there's just an enormous amount of evidence. And at a certain point, you get to a place where you can't dismiss it as coincidence. You, you, realize, you realize that something has been going on behind the scenes of history that we haven't taken account of, particularly so since this uh, mission also continues in South America very, very much so in South America, where it is accompanied with the use of visionary plants, uh, most famously ayahuasca. Uh, ayahuasca means the vine of souls, the vine of the dead. Uh, and the Tucano, when their shamans gather together and drink large quantities of ayahuasca, their journey is as follows. They leave their bodies. They rise up to the Milky Way, and there they encounter supernatural beings which, to which they must explain themselves and negotiate with. It's a, very, it's a very similar set of ideas. And then, lo and behold, what do we find in the Amazon but gigantic earthworks that are now emerging from the jungle? Ten years ago, nobody even knew they were there. Uh, but the clearances of the rainforest have revealed these huge geometrical structures, very large like the geometrical structures of Egypt, very like those of the Mississippi Valley, and harnessed to the same religious system. Let's talk about that for a moment. Now, now we're we're gonna. They need to buy the book. Okay, mm -hmm. there are a lot of pages there to get down, dig down into the details of the Americas and North America. But going to South America now in the Amazon, you're saying that this was essentially a man-made rainforest or garden. Now, most people say, "What is he talking about?" They disturbed indigenous lands, native wild lands. You say no, and let's talk about some of that really shocking and interesting well, evidence. This is, this is part of the package of new evidence that's coming out of the Amazon, and it's, and I say that a package of new evidence quite deliberately. I've already mentioned the gigantic earthworks, which are rightly called geoglyphs, uh, because they are all massive and geometrical in nature. Uh, and as I say, we didn't know about them 10 years ago. It's the tragic clearances of the rainforest that have revealed their existence. Um, at the same time, over the last 10 years, there's been a revolution in our understanding of the ancient Amazon. It was felt until relatively recently that there had been no human beings in the Amazon until about a thousand years ago. This has now been completely overthrown and it's been overthrown by mainstream archeology span who've had to face the evidence. It's now accepted that there was a population of more than 20 million people in the Amazon prior to the Spanish conquest. And, and why did they all disappear? Because the Spaniards brought smallpox into the Amazon uh, and, and the, the indigenous peoples were not um, resistant to smallpox and there was a massive die-off. Early Spanish explorers of the Amazon reported seeing enormous cities, larger than the cities in Europe at that time, cities with advanced arts and crafts. And again, they were 100 years later when other explorers went into the area, they couldn't find those cities. Well, they couldn't find them because their entire populations had died off and they'd been overgrown by the jungle. And those cities also are being revealed uh, by the clearances of the rainforest. And it turns out those reports were true. Uh, another part of the package is an amazing man-made earth that was created in the Amazon, pure science, uh, an earth that is called terra preta or Amazonian dark earths, which um, uh, contains millions of species of bacteria that are not found in neighboring soils. And you can take a, a handful of 8,000-year-old terra preta and add it to barren soil and it will turn it fertile uh, immediately. Uh, this is this is science at work uh, in 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 the Amazon. The very creation of ayahuasca is science, uh, because as you know, the neither of the two principal ingredients of ayahuasca are 
um, uh, active uh, s s psychically uh, 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 at all on their own. Um, they, they only become psychoactive when they're cooked and mixed together. The ayahuasca brew is a mixture of two plants. Go figure how that was done by trial and error out of 150,000 different species of trees in the Amazon. Go figure how they made curare in the Amazon, which is the basis of modern anesthesiology. Curare uh, involves 11 different plants, none of which are effective on their own. They all have to be brought together uh, in, in, in order to, to, to make it. So we're looking at a complete revolution in our understanding of the ancient Amazon. And the important point to make is that there are still five and a half million square kilometers of the Amazon covered by dense rainforest, and hardly any of it has been investigated by archaeologists. The, uh, the investigations that have taken place in the last 10 years are utterly stunning, and they've completely changed our picture uh, of, the, of the ancient Amazon. Um, and goodness knows what remains to be, to be discovered uh, under that rainforest. Uh, and, and if I may touch on one other point, uh, which I go into in depth in the book, it's this very curious uh, DNA signal that is found in the Amazon, which, uh, which um, is found amongst Australasians, amongst people from Papua New Guinea and amongst Australian Aborigines, and is only elsewhere found amongst certain isolated tribes in the heart of the Amazon jungle. Uh, and because uh, ancient skeletal remains have been found in the Amazon jungle and have been DNA tested, we know that this signal reached the Amazon during the last ice age. The problem is, it isn't present in North America. It isn't present in Central America. It's only present in the Amazon. And that says that migration did not happen overland, right. across the Bering Land Bridge and into Alaska and down through North America and Central America. So that migration must have happened across a major ocean. Uh, and that ties in with those ancient maps, uh, which archaeologists don't want to accept that our ancestors in the Ice Age were capable of crossing and navigating major oceans, but that DNA signal in the Amazon is proof they did, uh, that a, a reproductively viable population was brought from somewhere like Papua New Guinea and was settled in the Amazon. And this ties in perfectly, in fact, with the origin myth of the Tucano. Absolutely. I mean, what's so exciting about this is not just that they're clearing land for cattle pasturing, which is how a lot of this is being revealed, but also the new technologies that are being used to look into the earth, look deeper into the earth. And one of them is called LIDAR. And you also spoke about Guatemala and the structures. I mean, we think of this, when we hear Guatemala today, most people think, oh, the poor people, these poor people waiting at the American border to the south, thinking these are people who have nothing, have had nothing. No. Please clue everybody in to what is under the ground and what was there once upon a time. The reason that I, I, I bring Guatemala up at all um, is not so much to do with the issue of the lost civilization. Um, it's more to do with the issue of what new technology can reveal. Yes. Uh, of course, Guatemala was one of the centers of the ancient Maya uh, civilization. The, the, the Mayans were very much centered in, in Guatemala, and I have been and been just blown away by, for example, Tikal uh, in Guatemala, these incredible Mayan temples that you find in the heart of the, the jungle in, in Guatemala. Uh, within a few miles of those temples, unknown to archaeologists, lay more than 60,000 other structures. 
and those structures have been revealed by LIDAR, which is, which is basically involves sending laser beams down from aircraft, uh, which uh, the, the technology strips away the vegetation without actually doing any harm to it. Uh, and you can see what's lying underneath. And my point is, Guatemala is a really small country. It's only 100,000 plus square kilometers. And if we can find 60,000 previously unknown structures with this technology within a few miles of famous tourist sites like Tikal, then goodness knows what awaits us in the five and a half million square kilometers of the Amazon, exactly. where, where the, the, the invitation is already coming from the structures that have been found. And again, I, I say this because we have been humbled as a human species to such a low extent, to have so little respect for ourselves as a species that we continue to try to suppress any information that would give us credit to be anything more. And it is, it's a very sad affair to think of what has become of what was once such a great culture, a Mayan culture, one of the most advanced cultures um, spiritually in the world. And also, if I may say, one of those cultures that was the beneficiary of the legacy I'm talking about. Yes. The ancient, the ancient Maya incorporate all of those same ideas of the marriage of heaven and earth, of geometry, of very precise calendars, uh, that the ancient Maya culture uh, represents these memes that are also found in ancient Egypt. The ancient Maya also, also had the belief in the path of souls, uh, the role of the constellation of Orion, the, the journey along the Milky Way. Uh, this is a package of religious ideas that had to have originated somewhere. Uh, and because it's found all around the world, it had to have originated a very, very, very long time ago. And cut a long story short, I, I believe it began in North America. Yes, and I only brought that home again because here we have uh, poor and hungry people waiting at the border, being reduced to that all over the world, not just the Guatemalans waiting at the American border. This is a, this is a problem of our, of our civilization. Uh, today is that there are certain political figures who advance their own careers by manipulating hatred and fear and suspicion, uh, by uh, trying to tell us that we are somehow special and that people of other countries are not and that they want to take our stuff. And this appeals, this appeals, this appeals to the lowest kind of gut instincts of human beings. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it leads us to become very defensive and, and, and even very aggressive uh, in protecting what we regard as our territory. And the point I keep trying to make, and I, I get a lot of criticism for this because I, am, I do not like nationalism. I think nationalism is a mistake which the human race urgently needs to grow out of. And I need to say right away when I say that, that that does not mean I want a world government. I do not want a world government. I would prefer to have no government at all. No, you're an anarchist at heart, as am I. I totally get it. In the words of my friend uh, Greg Sams, the state is out of date. We need to get rid of states and move on. Uh, into into communities uh, working together. All of us all over this planet are members of one human family. There's no us and them. We're all us. And while we go on thinking in terms of us and them, we are not going to make progress. Very narrow-minded, greedy, aggressive individuals are going to continue to exploit our tendency to, to fear and suspicion of others uh, and to manipulate it and magnify it for their own gain.
while diminishing the human species. This is what's happening in the world today, and we need to, we need to wake up to this, and we need to change it. Love is what's needed. Human, human beings all have the capacity for love. Anywhere I've traveled in the world, to the remotest parts of the rainforest, to the remotest deserts and savannas, I find human beings to be the same everywhere, the same hopes, the same fears, the same ambitions, the same love for their children and for one another. Uh, everybody, we're all the same. We're all one family. It's wrong for us to be divided into this nation and that nation, um, which are purely accidents of birth. What, why, why should I feel especially proud of being British? I, I can't, I've never been able to understand the logic of that. A lot of people attack me for that and say I should be proud of being British because Britain has a great heritage. But I'm sorry, that heritage has nothing to do with me. I was born in Britain. It was an accident of birth. I earned no merit by being born in Britain. I can only earn merit by the life I choose to live. Um, and and this, is, this is why I detest nationalism. Uh, and, 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 and all of the atavistic instincts that go with it. We have to grow out of that. Uh, and we have to nurture the human family if we're to have any future on this planet at all. And right now, we're not doing a good job of that. No, we are not. And at the expense of sounding nationalistic, <laughs> uh, what, I, what I want to get into is more of a spiritual understanding. Your perception now, bringing it back to America, America is an interesting place on a psycho-spiritual level. Francis Bacon, writing about America as the new Atlantis. What do you see? Do you see that as simply metaphorical? Or would you say there's actually been a physical history to that effect laid down that he might have been referring to, a type of awakening to a remembrance of? I see that. I see evidence for that uh, on my travels through America uh, all the time. Uh, this, this, uh, America is an amazing country. I, I, love, I love traveling in America. I love the landscapes. I love the people. Uh, and the different and the different local cultures that you find that you find within within America, but what I also see in America uh, is a very clever, very manipulative political system uh, which is exploiting uh, democracy as a matter of fact, which is using misinformation, misinforming the public in order to get public will behind ideas that are actually not good uh, and not helpful, but at the same time, while the state in America is operating in often in a very negative way. What I see all over America is people waking up, uh, people refusing to put up with the bullshit any longer, uh, people insisting on thinking for themselves and not being told what to think. And part of an example of this, it's uh, the Canada where I am now, of course, the, at the government level has legalized cannabis. In America, what's really interesting about America is that the legalization of cannabis has been driven from the grassroots. It's happened at a local level as a result of local initiatives where people have literally put one finger up to central government and said, we will not tolerate you telling us what to do with our own bodies and our own health and our own consciousness. That's our decision, not central government's decision. And to me, that's very encouraging that state by state, Americans are rolling back the control system of central government. And that's why the legalization of cannabis is so important, because with it comes awake and another kind of awakening, a realization that if we can make that decision for ourselves, we can also make other decisions for ourselves. And we don't really need to be led 
uh, actually that much. Oddly enough, the people who criticize me for saying that nationalism is, is, is a bad thing are also the people who say we do need to be led. We do have to have leaders. Uh, I don't agree. We don't, we don't have to have leaders. We, we should stop underestimating ourselves. We have enormous potential as communities to do things right. I couldn't agree with you more here, here. And to start wrapping this and winding it down, because you got to get a little rest. You have another performance and you'll be signing books till two in the morning again tonight. Um, let's just talk about uh, how this whole limiting of our thought and our species, people are rebelling against the notion of authority and institutional thinking. And you have found a few people who are starting to come over and say, yes, we're not a limited species. And this is really the key to this story across the board is we're not limited. We're not limited in our capability of sight. We can get there through any number of means, including cannabis, ayahuasca, deep meditation, monasteries, however you choose to get there. We're we not limited. Stay stuck in the problem-solving state of consciousness. It has its function, it has its place, but it's over-monopolistically controlling the consciousness of the modern world. We need to embrace altered states of consciousness because that's where creativity comes in. That's where innovation comes in. It come, if we stay stuck in a rigid pattern of thought, we're never going to create and we're never going to innovate. We're just going to keep on doing the same things again and again. And it's those vested interests that want to keep us doing the same things again and again and that want us not to ask any questions. It's precisely those vested interests that don't want us to experience psychedelics uh, because those psychedelics do again and again lead to individuals who didn't ask questions before, suddenly starting to ask questions, not only about uh, the nature of government, but also about the nature of reality. Indeed, and one final question. You talk about the fact that this toroid belt, the, the fragments of the, this meteorite, it continues to exist, and there's always the possibility that we're going to encounter such an event again. History would seem to indicate we've had multiple uh, extin extinction events, cataclysmic events throughout our history as a species. And yeah. so you're, you, you and others are pointing out, okay, it happens. Okay, we seem to read a very important point uh, here um, because I mentioned the Younger Dryas cataclysm and I mentioned the mass of scientific evidence that pins it to a series of impacts by fragments of a giant comet. Uh, those fragments of that giant comet formed what is called the Torrid Meteor Stream. Uh, and the Earth still passes through the Torrid Meteor Stream twice a year. The Torrid Meteor Stream is now. 30 million kilometers wide. It takes the Earth 12 and a half days to pass through it in June, and we pass through it again for 12 and a half days in November. It is filled with filaments of extremely harmful debris. Not, not all that debris went away in the Younger Dryas Cataclysm. A lot of it remained aloft. Some of the bits of debris are quite famous. Comet Enki, for example, is part of the Torrid Meteor Stream. And Comet Enki is about seven kilometers in diameter, and it is a large fragment of that original giant comet. Likewise, Comet Olgiato, Comet Rudniki, they're all parts of the Torrid Meteor Stream, uh, and they are all fragments of the original giant comet, and they are still aloft. This has been a hidden hand in human history. It wiped out a whole civilization during the Younger Dryas. There's evidence of other impacts later in the Bronze Age, mysterious periods when civilization went into a kind of collapse. We're now realizing that we have had other impacts from this meteor stream throughout history. The most recent documented impact was the Tunguska event uh, on the 30th of June, 1908. That was at the 
peak of the beta torrids uh, as the Earth passed through the torrid meteor stream in June. And that uh, object wasn't even very big. It was only about 100 meters in diameter. It didn't even hit the Earth. It blew up in the sky. But it flattened 80 million trees across 2,000 square kilometers, which is an area bigger than any major city today. Um, this tells us that we should be paying attention to the torrid meteor stream. We are, the one benefit of our technology is that we have reached a level where we could, if we chose to do so, make our cosmic environment safe, or at any rate, much safer than it presently is. The problem is that we are focusing all our ingenuity and all our wealth on warfare uh, and on creating weapons of mass destruction, ever more you know, sophisticated ways to murder one another on a gigantic scale. What a waste of human intelligence and ingenuity when what we should be doing is learning to love one another and to value one another as a human family and protecting our environment and protecting our planet so that our children and our children's children can have a future here. We have the technology now to sweep our cosmic environment clean, but it'll cost a lot of money and it will require the focused attention of many, many different peoples around the world. It's going to involve a concerted human effort in order to do this, but we can do it. We don't have to be the next lost civilization. That's my view. I agree. Do you believe that there is perhaps a type of cycle of cosmic consciousness where these things are destined to occur, to kind of create a reset, or that our own elevation of our own consciousness can actually impact the events that do occur on this planet. I absolutely think that that's the case, and that our own elevation of our own consciousness can uh, affect this directly. And that's why I take hope from what's happening now. And that's why I take home from the young, take hope from the younger generation. And I am at my talks and events. I'm I'm meeting hundreds and hundreds of, of young people in the age range of you know twenty to to, to forty. I call forty year olds young people now. Since, <laughs> since I'm nearly sixty nine. Uh, and and what what I see is incredible openness of mind and 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 openness of spirit and a a spirit of love uh, and a willingness to embrace extraordinary ideas. Um, and an absolute rejection of authority. Um, it's not only that the evidence has moved in the direction of the hypothesis that I originally put forward in Fingerprints of the Gods. The other thing that has changed as regards my work is the attitude of the public towards authority figures. Back in the 1990s, Dr. X or Professor Y, who said Graham Hancock's work was not worth reading, were believed. Uh, now when Dr. X or Professor Y say my work's not worth reading, that uh, actually motivates people to read it because we don't trust Dr. X and <laughs> Professor Y anymore because we know they've lied to us so many times about so many things, like all other authority figures. We do live at a time of change. We are at one of those crux moments in the, in, in the human story. It's not certain which way it's going to go. We have to exercise our intelligence our powers of choice in order to make the right decisions rather than the wrong ones. And we must resist those voices that seek to generate hatred and fear and suspicion. Hatred and fear and suspicion are the enemies of the human race. They should have no place in our culture. And any politician who exploits those emotions should lose his or her job immediately. 
I think everyone watching this, including myself, will second that, Graham. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your super, super busy schedule to talk with us. I have a copy of the book right here. That's how I read it. And so again, America Before, the key to Earth's lost civilization. Yeah, so I'm hoping to I'm I'm hoping that more of my readers will come along to my events. I love meeting my readers. It makes it all real to me. Uh, writing's a very lonely business, you know. You sit there putting words on a screen. Uh, it's great for me to get out to meet people who read my work, to meet people who support my work, to exchange views with them, and it's my opportunity to give back for that support from my readers, for which I am so immensely grateful. Well, I know they're all thrilled when they have a chance to rub elbows with you even for just a moment. So again, thank you for your decades of dedicated research. And we will talk again when the next book, next book comes out. So until then, uh, take good care of yourself. Get a little rest where you can. And thanks again for your time, Graham. Thank you. Lovely to spend time with you. Again, everybody, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. So again, you can buy that on Amazon and other major booksellers. And just take a look at Graham's schedule on his site, and you'll be able to find out a little bit about his itinerary while in the United States and beyond. Again, thank you for joining us today on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>